As we come to our study in the book of Romans, we are in the midst of that section, the international defense of the gospel. And if we break this down in more detail, 9 through 11, we see the tragedy of Israel. We have seen God's sovereign freedom in election. We have seen human responsibility or starting to see that with chapter 9, verse 30, and on through chapter 10. With all of that, of God's sovereign election, chapter 9, then at the end, they are wrong, they are responsible because they didn't listen, they didn't seek righteousness by faith. They were responsible to do this. And now we come into chapter 10, and we're hearing that message that there is a word of faith that has already been accomplished, and it's not something hard and difficult for you to do. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to cross over the sea. You don't have to go down into the depths of the earth where Jesus was in the grave. All you've got to do is to take this word and believe it, but you are responsible to do so. And then in the latter part of chapter 10, it's not only that individuals we need to believe, but it is as a church that we are to make sure that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. We need to be commissioning them and sending them to proclaim the message of Christ. I think it's good for us to remind ourselves periodically of the expanse of the Roman Empire, uh, with, of course, Rome there in Italy as the center of this. It's beneficial to me to see all of these various little nations that were a part of that Roman Empire to consider all the land connections through the roads, all the sea routes, everything focusing on Rome, and recognizing that at Rome, and we trust there in the cosmopolitan church at Rome, there were many nations represented and something broader even than what we might think of a Jew and Gentile, many, many different cultures. Paul recognizes the ethnic mix in the church at Rome, and he is promoting unity among this ethnic mix in the church at Rome, saying in chapter 1 and verse 17, my gospel is for the Jew and for the Gentile, saying here in chapter 10 and verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And in promoting something of that unity of the church, he has been highlighting God's sovereign freedom. God's sovereign freedom, verses 6 through 29, God is working by way of election. Uh, God's purpose is mercy, but he is sovereign as how he opens that up. God is sovereign. Uh, the, the, The power, the mind, the intellect is not in the clay. It is in the mind of 
that one who is shaping the clay, the potter, according to his will. So once again, I highlight for us this balance of the word of God, God's sovereign election. Should we become hyper-Calvinistic and never offer the gospel and just leave it up to God? No. For in the same context, we move directly into personal responsibility to believe and the responsibility of the church to have the gospel going forward to the ends of the earth. As we come back to this section, this gospel section, believing by faith, remember there are two different views on how we get to heaven. One is right and the other is wrong. Someone says the sky is blue and someone says the sky is green. We have to decide which is true. There are opposing views. There are antithetical statements, those things that are absolutely contrary to one another. Salvation is either the payment for a wage for work done, or it is a gift of grace. Remember this slide all the way back to Romans 4? It's a, salvation, is it a payment of wages? Is it a gift of grace? And that is coming to the fore in our section here as Paul is preaching the gospel. So notice with me now Roman numeral one, the zealous error, the zealous error of unbelieving Jews, verses one through three. First of all, A, Paul's response to their pitiable condition. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here is Paul's goodwill for these unbelieving Jews. He doesn't give a cold, heartless, academic explanation of the situation, and he is unmoved and untouched by it. No, it takes us back to Romans 9 and verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The way that Paul states it here in Romans 10 is not as detailed, not as intense, but it is the same heart's desire, the same goodwill in his heart, even lower than that desire, that he wants salvation for the Jews. Secondly, Paul's response to their pitiable condition, he has goodwill, but then there is Paul's prayer for the conversion. He doesn't know which of the Jews will be saved, and therefore he broadly prays for their conversion. And, and in this, I think we need to consider a couple of things. One is that Paul is really exemplifying the heart of God. The God who says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he turn, turn, turn. There's the pleading God, even the God who has sovereignly chosen his own, yet there is behind the universal offer of the gospel this desire 
on the part of God that men, women, boys, and girls would be saved. We've got it there if we think about Ezekiel 33, but we, can, we only need to go down to verse 21 and see, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what we need to just see it highlighted in our minds is that you and I need to be like Paul. We need to be like Paul in the sense that we understand in our minds, so to speak, that God is absolutely sovereign and God must work. But we need to have something of the heart of the Apostle Paul that at the same time we know this, that our heart is going out with something of desire and affection for those around us who are lost and outside of Christ. But then notice even the the words here of uh, Professor Murray as he speaks of it, we violate the order of human thought and trespass the boundary between God's prerogative and man's when the truth of God's sovereign counsel constrains despair or abandonment of concern for the eternal interests of others. No, we need to be concerned. We need to be like Paul. We need to be like God, warmly entreating that sinners would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's A, Paul's response. Let's look at Paul's statement of their zealous error. Now, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul testifies of their zeal. They are running. They are not walking. They are running. But Paul testifies of their error. They are running in the wrong direction. Calvin reminds us that Augustine said, it is better to limp in the right way than to run with all of our might out of the way or in the wrong way. Some of you had soccer games yesterday. Let's imagine what your teammates would think of you if in your zeal and your skill you were able to fake the goalie and then step around them and kick it in and score a goal. And you did this three times. Well, what's wrong with that? Very zealous. But it was a goal for the wrong team. This is what Paul's talking about. They have a zeal, but they're running in the wrong direction. And so there is something of a partial commendation here, but really he is exposing their foolishness. And as we think about this, they have zeal, but not according to knowledge. Think of what we often hear, that as long as you are sincere, 
As long as you are sincere, it doesn't matter if you're thinking about Buddha, if you're thinking of a whole pantheon of deities like in Hinduism. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're Christian. As long as you are sincere, it'll work out well for you in the end. No. No. There is such a thing as zeal, but not according to knowledge. The Lutheran landscape urges us to see this by his illustration. Take poison with great zeal. The zeal will not prevent the deadly effect of the poison. And the greater the intensity of zeal devoid of true knowledge, the more damage it does to itself and to others. And this is true in all the departments of life. If you're the kid that scores three goals for the other team, you've been zealous, but you've been misdirected, and the more you do it, the more harm is coming to your team, and the more harm is coming to your reputation. No matter how great the zeal produced by truth The true knowledge that comes out of God's truth brings along with it something of a balance that is very different from the disease and the injury of fanatic zeal. Here's Paul's standard. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So he says... Truth is not unimportant. Truth is very important. It's good to be zealous, but it must be zeal that is putting the ball in the right end of the field. This is why we engage in verse-by-verse exposition of the Scriptures. It's why we engage in a topical study of what does the Bible say about this issue. We want something better, don't we? We want something better than zeal, but without knowledge. We want a zeal that is according to knowledge. Thirdly, see, Paul's explanation of their opposition to God. Now looking at verse 3. First of all, we find that they are ignorant of God's righteousness. There is a righteousness that is developed by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. One has said, it's not merely that they did not acknowledge this righteousness while at the same time knowing that it was that to which the Scriptures bore witness. 
They did not understand what had been revealed. They have zeal, but not according to knowledge. And this is a sad reality. Those who are unconverted, if you're not yet a believer, it's hard for you to understand grace because works righteousness is so deeply embedded in us. It's just the the way that we, I'm in this problem, I've sinned against God, now I've got to fix it. I've got to do enough good works that are going to outweigh my bad works. No, you can't do it. It's not your righteousness. You need this other righteousness of God. Paul's been talking about this. Romans 1 in verse 17 is, he's not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Romans 3 and verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Again, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's either the paycheck where I've done my deeds, I've done all these good things, and God's going to put it on the scale, and it's going to outweigh my bad things. That's not a good way of thinking about it. It's not a truthful way to think about it. Righteousness is not that it is slightly more than your bad. It's that you've got no bad. The right way to think of it is that there are these ten windows in your life, and if there's one crack in one of those commandment windows then you're doomed because God has perfection as a standard. And that's why there needs to be this other righteousness because our righteousness, which is non-existent, is certainly not going to be good enough to get us into heaven. And this is why Paul can complain. They've got zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. They should know, Isaiah 64 and verse 6b, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Now, if they understood this, they would not be seeking to establish their own righteousness, that they would be looking for this other righteousness that comes from God. Uh, I, I was blessed to... Uh, see in my Psalm 71 reading this morning, verse 2, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. So they are ignorant of God's righteousness. Little number two, they attempt to establish their own righteousness. They don't appreciate the significance of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. That's what we bring. Our sins, our filthy rags of good works, and somebody has to fix it other than ourselves. They are trying to establish their own righteousness. Thirdly, little number three. They refuse to submit to God's righteousness. 
God goes through all of the trouble to send his son to be born of a virgin. That son lives an absolutely perfect life in this sin-cursed world. He knows thirst. He knows spittle hanging from his face. He is perfect. He goes to his death dying in behalf of us for our sins. And God raises him from the dead to a test of our justification. And these have the nerve to say, no need, God. We don't need what you have done in Jesus Christ. We don't need this other righteousness. Did you notice this language? They refuse to submit as language of my head. The latter part of verse 3, they did not submit. They did not fall into rank to God's righteousness. We normally think of believing the gospel. Here it is, they did not submit. They did not bow their neck before God's righteousness. But think of the language of Romans 1 and verse 5. Paul says, my ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. Now that's similar to submitting to God's righteousness, isn't it? It's not that I believe only, but a part of that believing is when I bow before God's righteousness and says, only the righteousness of Jesus on the cross is going to get me to heaven. So the Jews of Paul's day, instead of looking to God that God would provide for them a robe of righteousness that God has made through Jesus, instead they insist on making a robe of rags of their own filthy rags and their sin-tainted good works. God is faithful. God is warm-hearted. God stands there and extends his hands all day long to Israel, a disobedient and a contrary people. But here is their error. They're running, but they're running in the wrong direction. They're tricking the goalie and getting the ball in there. But it's for the wrong team. Roman numeral two, the termination. The termination of righteousness for believers. What does termination mean? Well, you kids, when it comes to the end of the movie, if you wait long enough for the credits, before you shut it off, you can see the end. What does it mean? It has terminated. It is over. It is done. And that's the meaning here. The termination of righteousness for believers. First of all, A. Where do we find, where do we find the righteousness of God? Well, it's in Jesus Christ. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That which is natural to the human heart is, I need to work my way to God. 
once you understand who Jesus is, what he has done, once you are a Christian, that way of thinking is over and done. The end. At the end of the movie, no more to be said. Jesus has won our righteousness for us. And once you understand, I could never in a thousand lifetimes win God's favor, and now here is this perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, then you're done with good works. You're done with works righteousness as far as trying to merit God's favor. And who is Jesus? Well, he's that superhuman promise back in Genesis 3 that would come into a personal conflict with the one who made Eve fall, the devil. And though he would be wounded in his foot, he would bruise the serpent with his heel. He's the one spoken of in Psalm 22 by way of prophecy. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lot. The Jews should have known these passages. They should have focused on Isaiah 53. Not only what I've read already, but that he makes his soul an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, he's a guilt offering, therefore he dies, and yet he's coming back to life, and he's going to see a victory flowing out of him. And the message of the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Where do we find this termination this righteousness of God that leads to the termination of works righteousness in Christ. Secondly, B, what key role does Jesus play? What key role? Well, it's the end. It's the end of the movie. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the exemplar of the law. He's the goal of the law. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has brought works righteousness to an end for true believers. Leon Morris writes, We may certainly say that Christ is the goal of the law and that he is its fulfillment, but here Paul is saying rather that Christ is the end to the law as a way of attaining righteousness. Please understand that Paul is not saying that since Jesus came, he put an end to all use of law. If that's your understanding, then you're going to need to tell me what Paul meant when he said in Romans 3.31 regarding justification by faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And is Paul going to throw away the law, throw away the Ten Commandments when he says that which was critical to my salvation was that Tenth Commandment that said, you shall not covet? And then what are we supposed to do with Romans 13 and verse 8? Oh, no one anything 
except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Christ is the end of the law as a principle of working in order to get to heaven. Thirdly, see, for whom? For whom? For whom is Jesus the termination of the law for righteousness of God? Who sees at a practical level when the movie comes to its end, the end, when there is a documentary about men, women, boys, and girls working their way to God, and we come to the end, we see Jesus has died, and it's the end. Who's that for? What does our text say? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Implying that those are trying to work their way to heaven until they settle with the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to continue to work their way to heaven. Such may come and sit in an evangelical church, but until God works, they're not going to understand. I cannot work my way to heaven. And this principle, he's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, true of Abraham and David and Moses. Remember back in chapter 4, Paul says, my Old Testament examples of justification by faith are Abraham and David. Not two ways of salvation, but these two opposing systems. The sky is blue, the sky is green, which one is true? Roman number three, the antithesis. The antithesis, the opposition of one way of thinking to another way of thinking, the antithesis of works righteousness and faith righteousness. Here's a quick summary of works righteousness. Verse five, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you're working your way to heaven, you must always be working. You must always be perfect. So we could see how this principle of works righteousness might be okay for a perfect man and a perfect woman living in the garden prior to the time that they sinned. But once there is one crack in the window of their lives then works righteousness is done. It is over. Because you and I cannot make up, we cannot remove the crack. If you're going to work your way to heaven, then you must always have been perfect and always be perfect. And dear friends, we need to give up on that. And the sooner, the better. 
This is what Paul's already been arguing in this section as it began in chapter 9 and verse 31. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Let's give up on trying to work our way to heaven. Let's acknowledge to the Lord Jesus Christ, I cannot do it. I cannot make up for the cracks, for the sins that are in my life really from the time I'm born. And if you're honest, every day that you live, there is some sort of crack or some sort of further cracking of an existing crack. Even though God has changed you, it's more that you're not getting as angry as often as you used to. It's more that you are telling the truth a lot more than what you used to. We need the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, B. The pleading of faith. The pleading of faith, righteousness, now verses 6 through 8. And there are three observations here. The first observation from verse 6 and 7. The gospel of Christ is not to be mocked or minimized. Do not say in your heart. And and I've got the faith of righteousness is pleading. But the righteousness based on faith says... He's personifying God's way of salvation. And God's way of salvation is saying, don't say in your heart, don't believe in your heart. In the deepest recess of your being, don't make it out that salvation is such a hard thing for you to accomplish. Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up. So it may be that there is a hint here of saying that the gospel is so hard or implying that what Jesus has already done hasn't been done. Jesus has come down from heaven. He has been in the grave He has risen from the grave. So Paul is quoting and adapting from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 9 and following, particularly 10 through 14. We saw that in our reading before the message. But Paul adds Christ to that Deuteronomy passage. And it's like he's taking, well, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was put in the tomb, and Jesus was raised from the dead and then exalted to the right hand of God. What it seems Paul is saying is, don't minimize this great work that God has already done. I mean, what's easier? To go up to heaven and find a redeemer and then bring him down and get him to do all of this stuff? Get him to be raised from the dead? 
Is that what you want to do? Or believing in what God has already done. Paul's point here is don't be mocking, don't be minimizing what Jesus has already done coming from heaven, coming up out of the grave. It's already been accomplished. It's not to be mocked, but believed. That's one. A second observation. The gospel is not great things that you must do, and I've already anticipated this. But in verse 11 from Deuteronomy 30, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. So this is part of Paul's point. You don't have to do it. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to cross the sea. You don't need to find someone to cross the sea or to go down into the grave and come up again. You get to heaven by believing in what God has already done. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And some of you know that that was the text that helped Spurgeon to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't any great thing he needed to do. He didn't need to go up to heaven, didn't need to go down into the earth, bring a Redeemer back to life. All he needed to do was look away from himself and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Thirdly, third observation, the gospel is a message that has already been accomplished and is readily available. This comes from verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. And in your heart. And if I came to one of you children after the morning sermon and I would say, can you summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ to me? I think any number of you would be able to tell me. Some of you might even reflect on 1 Corinthians 15 and say, well, the basic summary of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and that he was buried, and then he was raised from the dead. But you knowing that and being able to state that to me is not the same as believing it and giving your whole life to the God of heaven. But notice there in verse 8, there is that language in parenthesis, that is the word of faith which we proclaim. The word of faith, the word, the message, that's what faith believes. That's what faith embraces. So we'll take the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, that's what you know. It's in your mind. You're able to verbalize it. And so you see what Paul is doing. He's laying responsibility on each one of us to embrace the gospel that God has accomplished. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to cross the sea. You don't have to go down into the depths of the, of the earth 
and raise someone from the dead. It's already been done. But what you have to do is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are, Romans 1 through 8. And when we come to verse 9 and verse 10, we'll stick just with verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And just quickly, Paul says, believe the hardest thing to believe in the gospel. And what's the hardest thing to believe in the gospel? That Jesus lived a perfect life? That he died? That he was buried? Or that he was raised from the dead? You say, well, I was raised from the dead. Well, notice what Paul puts his finger on. If you will believe from the depths of your heart that God raised him from the dead, and my friend, if you're going to believe that, then you're going to believe all the other. If you believe that he was raised from the dead, you're going to believe that he was in the tomb, he was buried. And if you believe that he was dead and he was buried, you're going to believe that he died for our sins. So believe the hardest thing that there is to believe in the gospel. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then say the hardest thing that there is to say regarding the gospel. And will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is boss. And why is that the hardest thing to say? Well, it's because if you tell your brother, your sister, that you have believed and you are confessing Jesus as Lord, then there's got to be something in your life that is going to back it up. Believe the hardest thing. Say the hardest thing. But as we close, I want you to see that though it may be a hard thing and a struggle for you to admit your sin and a struggle for you to humble yourself and say, I need God to help me, that part may be hard. But when you think what Paul is saying here, what you need to do to get to heaven is not difficult. You don't have to go up to heaven and find a redeemer and bring him down. You don't have to go down into the grave and bring that redeemer back up out of the grave. You can't do it. You need omnipotence to get up there and to get down there and to bring him up. It's already been done. And the word, the message, is in your lips and it's in your mind, and you could tell me what it is. So don't say it's so hard to become a Christian. God's made it easy. All the hard work is done. You need to admit the truth. You're a sinner. And you need the other righteousness that comes from Jesus on the cross. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your holy word. We thank you, our God, that we can come to Romans 9 and find our minds stretched to see your absolute sovereignty. And though we don't understand it, we certainly don't understand it all, we bow before you and we say, Amen. God has spoken. And then immediately you pivot. And you, Spirit of God, hold before us our responsibility. And even in this passage that we're seeing this morning, you're speaking to us, God, telling us that salvation is not some impossible thing for us to try and accomplish. The great work has already been done. Ours is but to believe from the heart and to confess with the lips, and we will be saved. Bless your word, own it, bring spiritual life out of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.